Asav Sukkot and the Goats, Shir 184 by Vivian Hittery. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming. Uh, today's class, Asav Sukkot and the Goats. I appreciate that you came, even though the title is a little bit uh, <laughs> cryptic, to say the least. Um, hopefully, we'll tie together all the elements. Um, if you're wondering what a nice Syrian girl like me is doing in a place like this, I'm dedicating my class today to my sister from another mother, Katie. She introduced me to Yemeyun Bet Hanach, and she hosts me every year to come and study. I come for four days, and it's really the greatest gift in the world, so thank you. Um, so today's class, we're going to start with uh, in Parashat Vayishlach, I'd like to reacquaint ourselves with the mindset that Yaakov is in when he's heading back home. He had spent time in Lavan's house, he had been in Haran, and right in front of you, you have the beginning of Parashat Vayishlach. The sources have all the Hebrew, the, excuse me, the sources have all the English, and if anybody wants a copy of this PowerPoint, you can email me. The emails are on top of the source sheet, and then you'll just have everything, and you won't have to be troubled trying to write everything down. Um, so we start out in the beginning of Parashat Vaishlach, and we see that uh, Yaakov sends these angels. This is not working, right? Sorry. Uh, we see that Yaakov sends these angels before him, and in Pasuk 4, and in Pasuk 4, um, we see that Esav is referred to as Esav Achiv, Esav the brother of Yaakov. He's Esav before he's his brother. And we start to get the sense that he's going to send them, he's sending them out to Seir, to the field of Edom. So please remember the word Sadeh uh, here. Maybe I'll just speak like this. Can you hear yes. me? Yeah. I'm going to speak loud, and if you can't hear me, just raise your hand, and I'll we'll go we'll go it this way. So he goes to send these messengers to his brother, except that his brother is called Esav first. And as we look at the pesukim, it seems that Yaakov is constantly showing us through the text his relationship or how strained it is at this point, because the next pasuk he sends word to say, tell. Adoni Esav, my master Esav. And he calls himself Avdecha Yaakov. And we start to get this sense that Yaakov is sort of taking the position, the lower position, not the position that his father had given him when he had taken the Beracha. It seems that Yaakov is sort of accepting the role as if he never had gotten that Beracha. I'll explain myself a little more. He tells his brother, I have a short, I have a chamor, and I'm sending these things to find favor in your eyes. And what happens is when these angels or messengers come back to Yaakov, they say, we came to Achicha El Esav. We came to your brother. You think that the person that you sent us to is Esav first, and the fact that he's your brother is secondary, we're here to tell you, we came to your brother, who is Esav, and then I put this in red, 
because I think that Yaakov was only hearing white noise and the only thing that Yaakov could hear when the messengers come back is that your brother is coming with 400 men. There was nothing else that Yaakov could focus on at that point. That's all he was hearing. And what does 400 men, if we go back and see what the commentaries say, 400 men, what did that symbolize to Yaakov? 400 men means, you're right, war. And of course Yaakov would think that. Why would he think that? The white elephant in the room is that we can't forget that Yaakov had been told by his mother who had heard somehow because Esav says it Billy Boar. So Vayistom Esav, Esav hates Yaakov. These are strong words. He hates Yaakov because of the Beracha that his father had blessed him with. And he says these words. And they're pretty haunting and daunting. And I'm sure they've been haunting Yaakov for over 20 years now. Because Esav had said Billy Boar, as soon as the days to mourn my father come close, my plan is to kill Yaakov Achi, my brother, excuse me, Yaakov, my brother. The same way Yaakov thought that Esav was Esav first and his brother second, here it seems like Yaakov is saying the fact that he's my brother is secondary. It's not going to stop me from committing this deed. And so what happens is, and this is the part that I want to focus on, Yaakov plans for his meeting with Esav. You all know those three things that he does. He prays to Hashem and he says, Please God, help me. What is he afraid of? He's afraid that Penhikani Em Alhabanim, what might Esav do? What is the fear of Yaakov at this point? Not only will he kill me, maybe he'll kill the mothers, maybe his own mother, maybe even he's referring to Rivka, because she was involved in that whole Beracha situation, or maybe his own wives who are now mothers and his children, and we get the sense that Yaakov is starting to panic. He doesn't just pray to God thinking that the end is near for him. He sends gifts to his brother. And besides that, he also he send, he also prepares his camp. I'm calling it a camp, but at, at the time, it was a pretty small camp. It was more of a motley crew. And we could count on our hands and toes who was in his company at that point. Yaakov is coming with 400 men and, I, excuse me, Esav. And Yaakov, I'm appreciating his attempt, but 400 men against half of 20, let's say at best, he didn't really have much of a shot. And the reason I wanted to spend time on this is because we spend so much ourselves, we spend so much time worrying about the what could be's and what can happen and all of the uh, scenarios that we worry about and what happens in our own parasha should be a lesson for us. At the end of the day, all of the uh, preparations that Yaakov made, and he made many preparations, he instructs his um, his, his uh, messengers and he tells them, take the sheep, 
put a space between eder le'eder, between the groups, and this is exactly what you should say, and this is what you should do. And then at the end of the day, what do we see? All of our worrying was for nothing. All of our worrying. Now you could say, had he not taken all of those measures, perhaps there would not have been a happy ending. And the commentaries go out of their way to say, oh please, don't believe what you see. Don't believe everything you read. There are, and you might be familiar with some of the uh, Midrashim, I think it's one is from um, uh, Bereshit Rabbah, that says, oh yeah, you think they really hugged and they really kissed and they really cried? You know what happened when they hugged? You're shaking your head because you, they say that Yaakov's neck turned to stone and then perhaps they both cried. Why? Because Yaakov was crying about his neck and Esav was crying about his teeth because when he tried to kiss him, his teeth fell out. I mean, these are, this is just one example of a Midrash that refuses to believe that perhaps Esav was completely harmless. Maybe he even underwent a change. Maybe that threat that he had made 20 years ago, and let's think rationally, had he wanted to make good on his threat, Lavan's house was not a fortress. I mean, if he really wanted to go and snuff out Yaakov, he could have easily done it. And so what we have here is we have to start to look into the text for clues that could explain to us what was going through Yaakov's mind, aside from the fact that his brother had made that statement. He makes a lot of his own statements, and this is where the text is so magnificent. It gives us beautiful cues. Yaakov says this very strange thing. After he meets with his brother, and they hug, and they embrace, what happens? Yaakov says, please, my brother, and you should know, if you look at the Pesukim, Yaakov practically has to force the gifts on Esav. This is not an Efron HaChiti moment where he's sort of gouging him and taking him for all he's worth. Esav various times says, I have mine, you keep yours. Yes, Lirav, I have a lot. I don't need anything. I don't want anything from you, my brother. And then Yaakov insists in Pasuk 10 and he says, please, Velakachta minchati miyadi. If and when you are to take this mincha from my hands, al kenraiti panecha, I will be able to look upon your face as if I was looking upon the face of God and I was being accepted. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't make a lot of sense in the context of a person who's greeting his brother who he thinks wants to kill him. So I'd like to suggest possibly an alternate reading. If we start and put a couple of the elements of our story together, the first being a mincha, that's an easy one. If we just take the approach and go to where the first time and place of mincha appears in Torah, we'll start to see that the Torah is pointing us in a very clear direction. So I heard from the audience, Cain and Hevel. That was the first mincha that was ever brought. We're going to go revisit that mincha for a minute, but let's 
imagine for a second that Yaakov is thinking to himself, my brother who wants to kill me, where's that, where have we first seen that situation? Also the Cain and Hevel story. What if my brother Esav is like Cain who wants to kill me in that equation, if Yaakov makes a sovereign to Kayan, then who does he become? He portrays Hevel. And all of a sudden, a new world opens up for us. And we start to say, hey, wait a minute. If Yaakov wants to take on the persona of Hevel, maybe that explains why he sends so many sheep. Maybe he's the Ro'et's son, He's being as Hevel-like as he can, and he convinces himself that he's the victim, like Hevel was the victim to the point that he says, even though he's talking to Cain, it really seems that he understands the way the Mincha works. How does a Mincha work? Let's see. Oh, that was, I was supposed to show you that before. <laughs> How does the Mincha work? Let's look at it specifically in the story of Cain and Hevel. So it comes to pass that Cain brings pri ha'adama, and this gift is called a mincha to Hashem. Hevel also brings from his son and from their fats, and then when God is going to accept the mincha of Hevel, it says specifically that God accepts Hevel, and therefore God accepts his mincha. In other words, acceptance of a mincha is contingent on acceptance of the person themselves. So if you don't accept the person, you're not going to accept the mincha, and perhaps that's what Yaakov was telling Esav. If you will accept my mincha, it means that you will accept me. And at the end, what happens? Unfortunately, in this scenario, Hevel's mincha is accepted. And I'd like to suggest that the words gam hu, Hevel hevi, gam hu, the word hu is extraneous. It could have just said Hevel hevi gam, over gam Hevel hevi. But I'd like to say that Hevel hevi gam hu. He brought himself. He understood that the mincha is not just a physical gift, it's an extension of the self, it's a representation of the self. Therefore, Hevel's mincha was accepted, but Cain's mincha, unfortunately, is not accepted. He's miserable about it, and his literally his face falls. It says here that Hevel brought mibechorot sono. That's again a cue and a clue for us to recognize that the gifts that Hevel, excuse me, the gifts that Yaakov is bringing are to um, impersonate or for him to uh, behave or take on that persona of Hevel. I brought you this pasuk because I wanted you to see that the same thing that's going to happen now with Yaakov. We have the story of a brother. We have him in Sede Edom, and here it happens in the Sadeh, and we have the fact that they want to kill each other. 
And now this is the aftermath. What happens after Hevel kill, Cain, kill, Cain kills his brother? Hashem comes and tells him something very specific. He says, now you are cursed from the Adama, from the earth. You and the earth will have a continual bond. Your fate and the fate of the land is going to be bound together eternally. Why? The earth, patzta'it piha, the earth was involved. Notice the personification of the land. Patzta, she opens up et piha. All of a sudden, the land is a living, breathing entity that has a mouth, and that she opens her mouth. And if we ever imagined, and I did, that the earth was a um, innocent bystander to this crime, the poor earth was holy, God created it, and now that Cain spilt blood on it, it went from a state of being tahor to a state of being tameh. That's a very beautiful, romantic view. But the reality is much harsher than that. The reality is that the way God speaks of the land is that he says that the land patzta et piha. She's not a passive little innocent bystander. She is literally uh, opening her mouth. She's taking, and where is she taking the blood from? It didn't just spill on the ground. She's taking the blood from your hands. That's a much more active imagery. And then God says, Because you and her were accomplices in the crime, you and she, she's not going to give you of her strength. You're going to be a wanderer. And Cain tells God, Gadol avoni minesor. My sin is too great for me to bear. I can't handle this. I understand that you chased me out from Peneha Adama, and from your face I have to hide. I have to be from now on a Navinad, a wanderer, and anybody who sees me is going to kill me. I underline these phrases because there are some things that Hashem says, and in Cain's repetition of what God had said, Cain inserts his own punishment that God had never mentioned. When he says, Gadol avonim I'd like to say that he's suggesting or he's ex- establishing the first Yom Kippur. He is doing vidui. He is recognizing, he is not saying what? Hashomer achi anochi. He's not saying that. He's saying, Gadol avonim I now realize that my sin is very great. It's so great that I'm going to add two punishments that even though, God, you didn't give these two punishments to me, I am going to inflict them upon myself, so to speak. This is a guilty conscience type of uh, feeling that Yaakov is going through. And maybe I should press the pause button for one second and say, all of these events and all of these scenarios that are presented in text, in Torah, are not just for us to learn about Yaakov, Okayan, and his guilty conscience, 
but it's to learn about the tendencies of humanity, and it's to show us that human beings and their and and their emotions and how we could actually deal with them. We have a situation here. I don't think there's a crime that's as horrible as somebody killing his brother. In and we don't even have any uh, uh, details on it other than he kills his brother. But he says these things. He says. God, I'm so mortified, I'm so embarrassed from what I did, I can't face you. In English we would say, I've lost face with you. I'm using that terminology because God's going to use it for us soon again. And then he, when he says these words, this, I believe, is not just his charata, it's also his vidui. He says, Anybody who finds me, not only is going to kill me, what does it take for a person to make a statement like that? He's saying, in essence, if I were to see somebody who did what I did, I'd kill them. And so if anybody sees me, I, at this point, deserve to die. And then God says the most unusual pasuk. I've lost sleep over this one pasuk. It's very hard to reconcile or understand even what God is saying. Hashem tells him, and again, I'd like to suggest that this is God's reaction. If we see that Cain is doing a teshuvah, then God here is responding to Cain's teshuvah. And he says, Lachen, therefore, kol horeg Cain, anybody who kills Cain, shivatayim yukam, don't ask me what that means because I couldn't tell you with certainty. Excuse me. Shivatayim, you come. Something to do with the number seven, seventy, seven times, sevenfold. There have been attempts made to explain this that if somebody hurts him, then their punishment will be seven times as severe. Or I'm not sure exactly because the text is very cryptic about it. And then Hashem gives Cain this ot. He gives him some type of a uh, symbol so that nobody would hurt Cain. And so we ask ourselves, whatever it is that God gave Cain is meant to protect him. But is that protection, does that protection have an expiration date? Is the sevens some type of an expiration that only up to a certain amount of time, only when this is you come, when this is fulfilled? I'm not so sure, but I'd like to suggest something strictly by looking at the following Pesukim. There's a understanding, there's a, a way to learn Torah. Whenever you see something difficult, the Torah explains its own self. What do I mean by that? Right after God tells him something about that shivatayim, we suddenly notice, and for the sake of time I put it in red, we notice that the generations of Cain are listed for us. And if you count the number of generations you'll see that there are seven generations, which is really very exciting, but most fantastic is the actual seventh generation. The seventh generation, if you start from Cain, 
is Yaval. And you know what his brother's name is? His brother's name is Yuval. And it happens to be that in Yeshivat Haritzion, it's the Yovel. And this is how this class was born. This was a totally different plan, but I couldn't help but run with this Yovel. And I'm going to take it now further with you. So the first thing I'm going to suggest is maybe there's a pattern. The pattern I'd like to suggest in honor of the Yovel of Yeshivat Haritzion is that the seventh generation is going to have the ability to do a kapara, a tikkun, a fulfillment, a rectification for the first generation. And once you start to see text in this way, it starts to hit you wherever you go. A couple of weeks ago, I'm reading about Benotzel of Chad. I said, let me try. Who knows? Maybe I'll get lucky. And sure enough, I say, oh, let me see. Let me see. Let me count the... Let me see. We have the daughters of Selofchad, right? They are from Hefer, Gilad, Mechir, Menashe, right? Who is the son of Yosef. Sure enough, they're telling me about the daughters of Selofchad and they took the effort to go back exactly seven generations. So now let's see if our theory holds water. What is the theory? That the seventh generation is going to be what? Mechaper, or is going to be able to fulfill whatever the first generation couldn't. And so we have Yosef, took me a very long time to figure out those arrows. <laughs> so we have Yosef somehow closely connected to Benot Selofchad because they are seven generations from each other. Well, what was it that Yosef left as unfinished business? We meet him at the end of Parashat Vayichi. Do you remember what he tells his brothers? We're left with a tiny little bit of a stomachache that at the end, he's about to die, but we still haven't reconciled a thousand percent the relationship between Yosef and his brothers. He has to go as far as to endure his brothers saying, wow, now that daddy died, by the way, he said, he left word, the instructions he left on his deathbed were that you can't kill us. That you have to be nice to us and you can't take revenge on us. And we read this and we say, wow, Yosef has not yet achieved this sense of love from his brothers. And his dying wish is what? Please take my bones to Eretz Israel. And so what do we see? We see that exactly what the daughters of Selofchad are asking for. And if you go and read it in its text, you'll see the word brothers and brothers and brothers coming up over and over because the way that inheritance passes hands is if the father has no daughters, it goes to the father's brothers and then brothers, brothers, brothers. So what are the daughters of Selofchad here? How are they rectifying for Yosef? 
they want an achuzah, which means that a land possession, exactly what Yosef wanted, he wanted to be part of the land, please take me there. And he also terribly wanted to still have a relationship with his brothers. So let's talk about how the Yovel actually works. The Yovel, the Jubilee, is the 50th year. How do we get to the 50th year? Seven cycles of seven. How do we get to the seven? We first have to go through six years of working the land, and the seventh year is going to be Shinat Shemitah, the year of Shemitah. So the way it works is very simple, except that the way that the text describes the Shemitah year is very interesting. And there are many ways that you could say, work your land for six years, and on the seventh, don't work it. But that's not what the text says. It says, Ki tavo'u el ha'aretz asher aninoten lachem veshavta ha'aretz shabbat lahashem. The language that the text is going to use to describe a land that needs to lay fallow, that needs to be resting, is that shavta ha'aretz, first of all, is it an act that I, as the farmer, is taking? It seems like the farmer is passive and the land is active. The land has to do the work. It even has a little bit of a mashma'ut of the sounds like what? Shabbat, of course. Teshuvah. The land has to fulfill a Shabbat. The land has a responsibility to fulfill. And when it fulfills its responsibility, in other words, man has to keep Shabbat as its seventh day, and the land has to keep Shabbat as its seventh year, and when it keeps its Shabbat, it'll be a way for the land to return to come back, to be redeemed, so to speak, which ties in very beautifully with the fact of why does the land need to do Teshuvah? What did the land do? Oh, yeah, but I think I remember we said that the land, shoot, the land did play a role. So if the Yovel is going to be what's going to be Metaken, what's going to repair Kayin, right? Well, guess what? The Shemitah is the way that the earth, the land, is going to be able to purify herself as well. And this is the Patzta'i Piha Pasuk that we reference. And now we're going to see, I told you that we need seven cycles to get to the Jubilee, the Yovel, don't bother looking at the source sheets right now. Almost everything is going to be up here on the PowerPoint. I here put I put the English is in the diagram in case you need to follow it in the English. But the actual jubilee, meaning the 50th year, is described in the text using the number 7777 over and over. But when is it celebrated specifically? On the 50th year, on what day? On Yom Kippur. I think that's very, very appropriate if it's a time for Teshuvah for the land. 
and it's the time for Teshuvah, for Kayin, then Yom Kippur is the perfect day to celebrate the, uh, the Yovel. And what exactly happens on the Yovel? This word, Ukratem Deror, we put it on our Liberty Bell in America, right? Proclaim freedom throughout the land, Ukratem Deror Ba'aretz. There is freedom throughout the land. The land itself is going to be free. What's it going to be free to do? To go back to its original owner, right? And also each man is going to be free to go back to his original land. And specifically, Ish el mishpachto tashuvu. What does that mean? Ish el mishpachto tashuvu. Not only are slaves free, but if we want to think about Cain, what was his problem? He was going to be a Navinad, and now he's going to be able to return back home. Remember, Shivatayim, you come. When the sevens take place, then everything can revert back to its original pristine state. Now, there's another way that the Yovel is referenced in Torah. So one way is the actual 50th year, the Jubilee. But do you know what the Yovel is? And do you know even why Jubilee is called the Jubilee? The Yovel is the horn of a specific ram, and that specific ram is called Yovel. The name of that ram called Yovel, whose horn we blow on the Jubilee, Jubilee Yobel is what we're going to reference now. So actually, the Yobel references this certain type of shofar. And we might not be so familiar with it because it appears before Matan Torah. What happens before Matan Torah? God gives Moshe all kinds of instructions and tells him over and over, make sure the people don't breach the mountain. Make sure they don't touch the mountain. Moshe says, I told them already. Hashem says, tell them again. It's not enough. And over and over. But then we have this little pasuk here that says, Loti Gaboyad. We know that part. You shouldn't touch it with your hand. Kisakol Yisakel O Yaro Yare. Im Behema Im Ish. If anybody dares touch that mountain, what's going to happen to them? Devastation. They're going to be shot, right? They will not live. Did you remember the end of that pasuk? But wait a minute. This idea that only Moshe is allowed to go up the mountain and nobody else is allowed to go but Moshe, where we thought it's all about Moshe, how aware are we that we were intended to have our Moshe Rabbeinu moment as well. The text has it built in before Hashem appears on Har Sinai. The plan was, Moshe, you go up first. And then when the Yovel horn sounds at that point, everybody else, Hema Yalu Bahad, everybody else, come on. Come one, come all. This is a moment where everybody's going to be able to do what? To see Hashem how? Panim el panim. It's a way for man to do what? 
to regain face, to be able to find face. Remember what Cain was so concerned about? Cain was concerned about two things. He said, Mi panecha esater, God. I can't take it. I can't face you. God says, don't worry. Shivatayim you come. We don't know what that means. I'm suggesting today shivatayim you come means that the Sheva is referencing the Yovel. Whether it references the Yovel that we just described at Har Sinai, what will that accomplish? How will that rectify Cain's concern of mi panecha esater? No problem. You'll be able to face me. You'll see me panim el panim. What was his other concern? His other concern was vehaya komotzi yahargeni. Anybody who sees me is going to want to kill me. And so what does Hashem do? He prescribes a set time, the Yovel, the 50th year, where every single person, even Cain, who can't go back to his Achuzato or to his Mishpachto, how could he go back to his Mishpacha? He just killed his brother. But according to the Yovel, the Ish El Mishpachto Tashuvu. And so, I'd like to start by setting, we need to go back to Yaakov, back to the ranch. When they described Yaval to us, they described him as a Yoshev Ohalim. Only two people in all of Tanakh are Yoshev Ohalim, and I don't think it's coincidental. I think that the two Yoshve Ohalim were meant to be connected. And what do I mean by that? If Yaval, who is the person who's going to do the kapara for Cain, so Yaval is very closely related to Cain, is going to also be so closely related to Yaakov, we might have a little bit of a problem here, because who did I tell you Yaakov kept seeing himself as? He kept seeing himself as Hevel. So even though Yaakov he thinks he's innocent, Mr. Hatzileni Namiyadachi, Yaakov has to sort of come to a new realization. The text is going to tell us something that Yaakov is not going to say in any of his dialogue. So if we relook at the story, I'm sorry if some of the circles jumped away from us. If we relook at the story, of Yaakov, the word brother, achi, achiv, appears exactly seven times. And every one of those seven times, who's the ach? Elesav, achiv. Every time we see the word ach in the Yaakov story, the ach is always esav. You see, I have that over there, so I'm hoping that you're one step ahead of me and you're going to see how many times the word ach appears in the Cain and Hevel story. I think, I hope I've made seven circles up there. Yep. So we have seven brothers, and who's the brother every single time in that story? Because I would like to think that whoever the brother is in this story that has the brother seven times is the brother in that story that has the brother seven times. You know who the brother is? The brother 
in that story is Hevel. So wait a minute. If the brother here is Cain, I mean, excuse me, is Esav, and the brother there is Hevel, what is the text whispering to us? Yaakov has it all wrong. Esav isn't Cain. Esav is the victim in the story. Esav and Hevel are going to be completely paralleled. So we did a little exercise. At first I was disappointed. I said, ah, let's just see what happens. Let's count how many times. I have nothing better to do sometimes, so I <laughs> do these crazy things. I said, let's see how many times Yaakov appears. I don't know, maybe there's something. And we count, and Yaakov's name appears. And I wasn't very happy. I was ready to throw in the towel. It appears 16 times. 16, it's not a covenantal number. It's not 2 times 7. It's not anything that I could work with. What am I going to do with the number 16? Don't ask me why. But when I went to check and see how many times Cain's name appears in his story, boom, exactly 16 times. And we start to say the text, the text is telling us something. There's another story going on beneath the surface. And as long as you keep thinking that Yaakov is the victim, or as long as Yaakov thinks that Cain is unforgivable, then, or, then he's also going to think that Esav is unchangeable. And this whole story is brought to you so that we could learn something even greater. So let's ask ourselves this question. What brings a person like Yaakov to think in this way? And I don't want to have to be so obvious, but it's a measure of humanity. It's a lesson on human tendencies, which is what? Yaakov is living in the past. I only brought you a couple of pieces because I didn't want to inundate you with text. But he's constantly in the back. He goes back crossing over the Yabok. He has all the animals in front of him and he's always in the back. Vayavod, he passes everything in front of him and he's always in the back. And he's not just in the back physically. He's in the back because he's, he's in the past. Whereas Esav, if you track his movements, every movement of Esav is a forward movement. He's always charging forward. He's always looking towards the future. And we start to get this sense that if you're going to stay stuck in the past, then you're not going to be able to create a new path for yourself. It wasn't that Esav needed a new path. It was that Yaakov himself needed to find within himself the ability to move forward. So let's see if we could take our little system with those seven generations and let's see how they apply to Yaakov. His brother had told him, Nis'a venelecha ve'elcha lenegdecha. Esav gave him a very generous offer. Again, take your commentaries and your preconceived notions and put them on the side for a minute. According to the plain Peshat, Esav offers him a very nice 
invitation. Nis'a, let's travel together. Nelecha, come on, let's go, my brother. Elchalenegdecha. Right? Ezer kenegdo, it's not a bad thing. Don't think of the word neged as being bad. We'll go one together with the other. Does Yaakov take the invitation? He certainly does not. And we're not sure exactly what to do about Yaakov and his forward movement until we find the other, the only other place in Torah where this word Nelecha appears. And I started out just with the Nelecha in red, but of course the Torah is magnificent and perfect in its masterpiece formation. That once you go to look for the Nelecha, we start to see that in order for Yaakov to be able to move forward, it's going to come from his son Yehuda. What does Yehuda tell his daddy? And when does he say this? I'll give you a quick context. They already went down to Mitzrayim once, and let's say, for the purpose of, purposes of this class, that Shimon gets taken captive. Yosef is in Mitzrayim. They go to buy food. Shimon gets taken captive. The brothers come back. They say, Daddy, we can't go back unless you give us Binyamin. Papa says, no way, no how. I don't trust you boys for a second. And there's all kinds of convincing that takes place. But I'd like to revisit what Yehuda says specifically. And in revisiting what Yehuda says, I want you to now see what um, Yaakov is hearing. I'd like for you to hear what Yaakov is hearing. He's not just hearing the voice of his son, Yehuda. He's also hearing the voice of his brother, Esav. That scenario is going to be now piled on to this story. This is what he's hearing. Yehudat tells Yisrael, his father, Shilcha Hanar. You know that first Vayishlach? The one that you were so worried about your brother and you wouldn't even take his invitation to travel with him? You have another opportunity at sending. And send the Na'ad with me. Venelecha. Remember your brother said Venelecha and you wouldn't go? You're having another chance now. Maybe not you, but maybe through your children. You could allow your children to be brothers that are going to be traveling together. And remember you said what? Pen hikani em al habanim? Or he even said worse to Esav, if we hurry, what's going to happen? Then the tapim and the children and the, and the nurslings, the youngins, they'll die if we rush them too much, right? You were so afraid that you were going to die, I'm guaranteeing you you're not going to die. He says, Do you remember those yadayim, those yede esav, we're referring to all the way back in the day when you used the Yadayim to take the Beracha, don't worry, my Yadayim are going to do Teshuvah for your Yadayim. Im lo havi otiv elecha vehitzagtiv lefanecha. Remember Esav says, asiga lefanecha. Don't worry, if you can't come with me, I'll send you escorts to help you, to carry you. Same language. And then he says this strange thing. I'll be sinning to you 
all the days of my life. Why would Yehuda be sinning to God all the days of his life? Because if Yehuda is number two in the list of seven generations, if Yehuda doesn't come through for Yaakov, he's not going to be able to redeem him. And if he can't redeem him, then what? Then he's sinning to him all his days. He is the one that's intended to bring this redemption. And he says, if we would have left, we would have already made this trip twice. That other trip that you didn't take, and this trip that I'm going to take now. And he's, he even uses strange words. He's, um, Yaakov says, All right, Imken, Efozot Asu. What does that mean, Efozot Asu? I don't even think that that translates into any type of perfect English. I put that little asu in red because it just looked too much like Esav to me. And he's saying, Imken, Efozot Esav, if this is my opportunity to do right, the way I didn't do right with Esav, and here is to me the most beautiful part of the whole story that shows us that Yaakov understood. What does he say? If you're going to go, don't just take a mincha. Last time I sent a mincha because I thought I was Hevel. So the mincha that I sent was a representation of Hevel, the Ro'etzon, and I sent sheep. Now that I finally understand that in that equation, he is the victim, now I understand that what? That I have to send what? Mizimrat Haaretz. I have to take on the persona of the Kayan personality and I have to send what? The way Kayan sent a mincha and it wasn't accepted, I now could be mechaper for Kayan and have a mincha of fruits finally accepted. This is how the intergenerational system works. So we start to say that Yaakov, through Yehuda, through the Nelecha is going to be the um, beginning of the rectification. How many generations do you think we have from Yaakov to Yehuda? Peretz. I mean, I'm sorry, from Yaakov. I changed the question. Who is Yaakov's seventh generation? Of course it's Nachshon. How is it and why would it be that Nachshon would be the Mechaper for Yaakov? How does that work? I told you that Yaakov's challenge was what? The ability to move forward. Nachshon ben Aminadav, if you want to go with the Midrash that says he was the first to jump into the Yamsuf, but if you want to just keep it on Peshat, he's from Shevet Yehuda. He's the first one to travel every time they break camp. And not only is he the first to travel, but he's going to lead the charge when they're traveling in, and I'm going to use these words, in an impermanent place. And he's going to be the one to move the camp in a physical manner. And the reason I say that is because Yaakov doesn't just need to move forward physically. In order to move forward physically, the brain controls the body. You need to have a strong will, right? You need to have a strong sense of spirituality. And so, if I want to count 
from Nachshon, from the physical movement forward in an impermanent place. And I want to go seven generations from him. Who would I find? Well, we get to David, and we're going to spend 10 seconds, of course, at Shalomo. I'm happy that you got that. We're going to talk about David and why he's going to be the one that's zocheh to bring the seventh generation. David is the unifier of the brothers. Remember Yaval and Yuval? Well, Yaval was the Yoshev Halim. And Yuval was the guy with the kinor, the harpist. And I told you David was a Yoshevo Alim who also was on the side a harpist. So David is one person who's going to do what? Be a representation of both those Yovel brothers. But did you know that David is also going to be able to combine Yaakov and Esav? Because David is also going to be a shepherd like Yaakov, and he's the only other Admoni in all of Tanakh. So the only two Admonim are David and Esav. So David the Admoni, who's also a shepherd, is going to be able to combine, is going to be able to take two brothers and make them one. And that's what's going to bring Shalomo, which is going to be the spiritual representation in a physical place. And it just so happens now that we understand that what Esav was offering Yaakov was a way to access and return to the land. What does that mean? It's not just in his generation and in his time. It's in our generation and in our time as well. But I'll take you to a pit stop along the way to show you when we come into the land of Israel as a nation, we have in Sefer Yoshua, we have um, the, this concept of seven, seven, sevens. What's going on with these sevens? We have seven Kohanim. They're carrying seven Shofarot. And what kind of Shofarot are they? They're Yovelim. Of course they're going to be Yovelim. Why? Because these seven Kohanim carrying the seven Shofarot for seven days and are going to blow them seven times, they're not just going to be blowing the Yovel Shofar, which is exciting in and of itself, but the way that they're going to actually come into the land, if you'll see in Pasuk 5, Vehayabimeshoch sounds a little bit like Vehayabimeshoch Hayovel, right? Vehayabimeshoch Bekeren Hayovel. When you hear the sound of that shofar, what are the people going to do? Yariu. They are going to shout from the depths of their being. The walls of the city are going to come tumbling down and here is where it's most magnificent and beautiful. How are they going to go up? How are they going to go up? Exactly the way that Esav had suggested. He said, remember, I'll go up Lenegdecha. They're going to go up Ish Negdo. And 
um, I had put the title Sukkot. <laughs> I had put Sukkot, excuse me, in the title because I was originally planning on doing a completely different class until I found this Yovel situation. <laughs> and I thought this was more exciting than that. I'll just tell you a tiny bit. That class I had said, and I'm going to do a totally different take today, but that's what's so beautiful about Shiv'im Panim La Torah. So when I originally was going to do about Sukkot, I was going to say that Yaakov, it's totally opposite of what I just said, he undergoes a Yom Kippur. And he bows to his brother seven times. And he says, take birkati miyadi. He gives back the biracha. I know this is not the direction I'm going in. But I just want you to know how we got to this. And Yaakov had gone. I say Yaakov is the one that undergoes the Yom Kippur. And he says, achapera pana bamincha. And he uses all this terminology to make us think that he's going, undergoing a Yom Kippur. And then you can't go through Yom Kippur. What's the next thing that happens? As soon as Yaakov leaves his brother, he goes to Sukkota. Right. So again, I didn't sleep for a while. I said, shoot, how am I going to switch the class from making Yaakov the one who goes to Sukkota and went Yom Kippur? And now in this class, I completely turned it around. So hopefully we'll be able to resolve it. But first, I wanted you to see a reference of Sukkot from the text. You know when Sukkot, it's, uh, excuse me, it's about, it talks about the Shemitah. So it says, Hashem tells Moshe, after seven years, our seven, during the Shemitah on the holiday of Sukkot, what's going to happen on the holiday of Sukkot? You're going to be, it's going to be Hakel, of course. So in the holiday of Sukkot, what's going to happen? You'll be able to see the face of Hashem. And not just that, but in the Hakel, how are you going to read this Torah to the people? You're going to read it, Neged kol Yisrael be'oznehem. The people all are going to be keneged one to the other. So Sukkot becomes this time where the people are going to come together as those brothers could have, should have, and would have come together. And in coming together, that's what's going to bring out this reading um, of the Torah. This is the Ve'yaakov Nasa Sukkota. I said, what are we going to do with this? It says the word Sukkot three times. And originally I had planned this class to say, Vayivet lo bayit. He makes a bayit of himself because he went through his Yom Kippur. And now I'm going to say something totally different. I'm going to say that Yaakov, although he doesn't reach the final goal in his own generation, he goes to Sukkot. And I'd like to suggest that Sukkot can be seen as a certain place and as a certain time. Yaakov gets to the physical place called Sukkot, but his ultimate journey is going to have to be the Hakel, is going to have to be the spiritual manifestation of Sukkot. And when this happens, Look at the words of Yeshayahu come to life. Vehalchu amim rabim. 
Now we understand what Yeshayahu was telling us all along. Yeshayahu, the prophet, who's going to prophesize the coming of Mashiach, is going to say what? Lechu elhar Hashem. Remember that word? Nelcha. Who is it referring to? Of course, Bet Elohe Yaakov. Yeshayahu is saying, Yaakov wasn't able to do the venelecha to his, with his brother, but we, in the future, will be able to see the fulfillment and the fruition of Amim Rabim, of the nations coming together to be able to uh, hear Dvar Hashem Mi Yerushalayim. This is the tagline of Yeshivat Haretzion. Ki mitzion tetzet Torah. Udvar Hashem Mi Yerushalayim. I want you to see the next pasuk. You could cry. Oh, that's the same one. Don't, don't cry yet. Anybody hear the echoing? Yeshayahu is talking about the reunification. And what does he say when he talks about the reunification? He says, what is the cherev? Why am I getting so excited and why did I make the cherev in red for you? Because al chor the cherev is the weapon of who? Of Esav. Of course it is. The cherev of Esav is going to be completely cut and instead of having weapons, we are going to have words. We're going to have actually... Look at the next pasuk. And, and this is gorgeous. Lo yisagoy, you could start singing, but it's the nine days, and I don't have a good voice, but I want you to see that it's here. Lo yisagoy, elgoy cherev. Velo yilmedu od milchama. Bet, Yaakov, this is the next pasuk. Yeshayahu is gleaning. Bet Yaakov, he's talking to Yaakov. He could have said Bet Yisrael, he could have said Bnei Yisrael. But he's saying Bet Yaakov. If you're willing to take that forward movement, if you're willing to leave your hang-ups and your past and all your challenges and all your guilt and everything in the past, you'll be able to march forward and you'll be able to bask in the light of Hashem. And so this is my final screen. I wish happy birthday to Yeshivat Haretzion. May we all merit together to join and connect one another and be able to have a final return to Zion. Amen. Do you know the last two F4s before that F4 are the first two in Esav? The first two in Yeshayahu you're no, talking about? F4. You know you said F4. Asu. Oh, in, in can F4 F4s Oh, my gosh. Was this that the entire time? No, I was here. Okay, good, good. <laughs> I was just here. I'm not that terrible. All right, okay. Uh, that I think I did a little um, twirling. Thank you for the 10 minute warning. That was great. Oh, good. Oh, that good. Was a very big help. Yes. <laughs> Look at this. What a way to end the day. Oh, Thank you so much.